Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek and Visit Arizona. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of February 11th, 2019. White Sox pitchers and catchers are reporting this week as spring training gets started, which means it's time for our annual position previews, which we'll be looking at the Chicago White Sox catchers this week with help from our good friend Harry Pavlidis of Baseball Prospectus. Harry also shares a new metric called Deserved Runs Created Plus and the 2019 Pakoda Projections. We'll, of course, answer your questions at the end of the show in P.O. Sox, but like I said, pitchers and catchers are arriving this week to camp, which usually meant the end of the offseason. That's not the case in 2019, as we still don't know where Manny Machado or Bryce Harper will play. Joining me to discuss is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. It's been seven straight weeks talking about Machado and Harper, and I'm at the point of exhaustion. How about you? Yeah, I've been there to the point where when it comes to rumors, like the whole, you know, random Yankees had an offer, and then it turns out that it was just kind of debunked or whatever, I kind of miss entire half-lives of rumors that kind of pop up and dissipate just because it just isn't worth following until there's actually sustained movement by multiple sources confirming the same thing. Even then, uh, (laughs) until until you get a tweet that says, so-and-so is going to get their physical, uh, I, I, it's, it's hard to believe anything right now. I mean, people are still doubling down on their rumor as far as contract offers for the White Sox a month ago because there's really 
nothing else out there. We still don't know a lot of details. And, you know, when it comes to this, from the White Sox perspective, I don't know how much longer they can play the waiting game when it comes to Manny Machado because this is obviously not a situation where, you know, this is a player that you have under control. This is a free agent who could sign with anyone. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the question I have for the White Sox is, do you really want Manny Machado on your team? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to have him on your team? Or is there like a certain limit that you're willing to go to that if he agrees to that limit, then yeah, you're cool signing him. But if he wants more than that limit, then you're not that interested. And vice versa, looking at Manny Machado's party, uh, does Manny Machado even want to play with the White Sox? And, And at this moment, I question both parties' desire to get a deal done, Jim. No, that's fair. I mean, based on the lack of precedent with the White Sox closing out a deal of this magnitude, you know, they've offered, they've said they've offered, um, you know, comparable salaries, or at least, you know, uh, you know, going over a hundred million. Um, you know, we know about Tory Hunter that was short of a hundred million, but they, you know, that was a 11th hour movement by the angels to get involved. And then Tanaka was probably a hundred million, but when it comes to actually sealing a deal for anything above what Jose Abreu signed for, there's no precedent. And so, uh, you know, to, yeah, as much as Rick Hahn will talk about, um, you know, the effort and how you know, they feel like they've, you know, they're in a position to make such offers and that's a victory in and of itself. You know, that there's no reason to really accept that. It's more a matter of just waiting to see if they can actually convert. Uh, and, and, you know, to your point about Machado and the White Sox, I think, you know, the White Sox are in a position where they have to set the market. Uh, they, or they have to be the ones to offer more than you think because they have no inherent advantages and that's generally how it works out a team like the Mariners signs Robinson Cano because they offer way more money than the Yankees which is probably Cano's plan a and uh you know that's fine <laughs> I, I think when you have a you know other markets or teams like maybe the Cubs with Jason Hayward although that's not a bad that's not a good one to point to but you know he signed for a little less money because the Cubs were you know a massive thing uh, the White Sox are not a massive thing. They can maybe get there at some point if they can, you know, if this rebuild can stick and, you know, they can get a couple big names or produce a couple big names that, you know, make it an appealing place to land. But until they do, it's they have to pony up and, and Machado has to feel like the White Sox are ponying up and maybe he really wants somebody else to be involved and, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf isn't willing to raise the offer by himself. But uh, it just makes the situation hard to navigate and, and kind of hard to buy into as a White Sox fan because uh, you know, the longer it goes, the more doubt can creep in. And it's just not Harper or Machado. Marwin Gonzalez can help so many teams, and he's still a free agent. Mm-hmm. Dallas Keuchel is still a free agent. Craig Kimbrell is still a free agent. So... I'm going to propose an idea because I, I, I'm already dreading next off season. Like this off season has broken me, Jim. I'm not even looking forward to next off season. Uh, I'll just check out until February 1st and everyone can tell me what happened. Uh, no, that, that won't happen, but I'm just not looking forward to it. And my, I have a new idea on, on how this could maybe help major league baseball. You can shoot it out if you want, Jim, but I, I think Major mm-hmm. League Baseball needs deadlines. And I think Major League Baseball needs to work within a window in the offseason. 
where free agency period begins at the winter meetings early December, and it ends on January 31st. And every deal signed after the 31st is just a minor league contract. So if you're offering contracts to free agents to be on your 40-man or 25-man roster, they need to be signed by January 31st. If not by January 31st, you got to wait until opening day. And I just think a window is needed because I don't think this is good for the league, Jim. What is happening here in this offseason that you have these star players that could help every single team, and for whatever reason, they're not signed by training camp, uh, you don't see this in the other leagues at all. Well, how would you, I, I guess, how would that benefit the players? I, I guess I don't see how that, you know, if, if the worst thing that happens is that if players don't sign by January 31st, that they end up getting minor league deals, why wouldn't all the teams just wait like they are? I mean, you bring up a good point. I would think that teams that are actually trying to win would be more proactive in the negotiating efforts and not just, you know, throwing offers that you know that they're not going to (laughs) take, but you made an offer uh, and then play the waiting game. Like what is currently happening right now with Machado and Harper. So my, my thinking is what, how could help the players having a window is that the offers would be more serious from the very beginning. Maybe. I just think that, you know, should this be, if not collusion, then just a very, you know, all these uh, new age, you know, I guess, MBA type free agents, uh, or, or I should say general managers with MBAs and, you know, Ivy League backgrounds. I, I think if they're as disciplined as they are now to wait into February, and I think they're just going to use that as leverage over the players to say, like, all right, sign a three-year, $60 million deal, Manny Machado. What are you going to do? S- settle for a, a uh, you know, minor league contract? Just pick where you want to go. Yeah, I think it would be hard for, you know, I think right now the players' best leverage is that they don't have to sign anywhere, that they can hold teams up. And I think that's why Scott Boris you know, has taken as long as he has both this winter and previous winters and that's why Machado is joining long, just because really just that indefinite uh, period might be the only thing that they have going for them. Okay, but why don't we see this in the NBA? Why don't we see this in the NFL? Why is it just Major League Baseball that decides to use this strategy? Because even this past week, the NBA dominated the headlines when you have these two-star players because of the trade deadline. And when the NBA offseason begins, you have to be on Twitter for 96 hours because everybody's going to sign within the first three days of free agency opening. Even players like LeBron James, the best that we maybe have seen in a generation that can command any type of contract with any team in the league, gets a deal done quickly. Why do we see the? Why do we? Why don't we? Why don't we have that in Major League Baseball? Because NBA players don't, especially the good ones, don't get paid their fair value. They can't be max contracts. So basically, the contract structure, if they offer max contracts, is basically established. And there really isn't uh, quibbling over dollars and years. It's more a matter of just you know picking a place to go. And also, probably tampering is way more rampant in the NBA. <laughs> well, it is. There's no doubt. <laughs> you know what? That's what Major League Baseball needs, Jim. Major League Baseball needs more tampering. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but... I, This is, like I said, I I may be boiling over in frustration here, but 
I just saw Pedro Gomez on ESPN interview Rob Manfred because I believe the owners are in Orlando right now discussing as far as the upcoming season. And Pedro Gomez just, you know, is a straight question to Manfred on what is going on with Machado and Harper. And the commissioner of baseball has a difficult time answering this question. He doesn't know what is going on and why two star players haven't signed. So I, I do think something radical does need to change. Maybe baseball needs max contracts, Jim. Maybe there is a maximum value that you can sign for and the maximum amount of years you can sign for is five years. I know there's the whole 10 to 5 rights that players have currently in the CBA. Uh, there's pensions on the line as they try to hit 10 years as they get a higher pension uh, once they do that. But something needs to change because – this is dumb. Like, I, I I, don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, I, I just don't see how it benefits the players. I think no matter, basically, uh, waiting is all that they have. And so, you know, max contracts doesn't favor the players. Deadlines don't favor the players. Uh, I think it all plays into ownership, this whole impatience thing. And I tend to side with labor, you know, and in this case with the Major League Baseball uh, raking in record revenues, um, yeah, the, the money isn't the issue and, and the, the revenue share isn't the issue. So I think it's uh, as frustrating as it is and uh, as easy as it is to tune out, I think it's a big problem for baseball and the popularity and just the, the, the overall buzz of it. I was reading Grant Brisby. He's now writing for The Athletic, covering the Giants. And he, and he went to their fan fest at uh, Oracle Park. I think that's the new name yep. for the uh, yep. Pac Bell. Um, yeah, and he said kind of the same thing with Bryce Harper looming over everything. People just show up and just, you know, they they don't get excited for the roster that's there. They, they're still wondering what the roster is going to be in early February. And that's, you know, that's not good. But uh, I think when it comes to trying to, you know, spur action, I think it's going to take uh, <laughs> either a Mike Illich type or a you know, Kenny Williams, Kevin Towers type, you know, the, the ex-athletes who, you know, probably just try to beat each other more than the, than the, uh, uh, you know, than the current GMs, which might be more just trying to be as efficient as possible without any regard to competition in the greater sense. Yeah. I'm starting to believe these, uh, Ivy league GMs, which the white Sox have one are more like CFOs than the general managers of past years. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, it makes sense in a way, you know, to, to have somebody who kind of understands how players contribute value. Cause I think, you know, that went over, you know, and, I, and that was kind of a big uh, sticking point a bit, you know, over say like late nineties, two thousands, uh, early saber metrics, uh, you know, analytics types who were rooting for this kind of overhaul in front offices, you know, being able to realize what value is in baseball, uh, but now I think it's gone too far in the opposite direction where everything is a value proposition and all the fun has been drained out of it. And I think that tends to happen. Uh, I remember reading, um, trying to think of the name of the book. It's an early sabermetrics book like one, by Craig Wright. The Diamond of Praise. That's it. I was looking at my bookshelf real quick. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he talked about, you know, going back to the 80s when he was basically one of a few 
sabermetricians in, in the game working, but he talked about, you know, these, these roster optimizations and bench types and, you know, the, the specialization of roles. And he just talked about how specialization will eventually kill the game and, and uh, kill the excitement as everything gets overthought and there are pitching changes and uh, the, the concentration on battles and roster optimization becomes so hyper-focused and, and, trying to gain every possible advantage that they lose the bigger picture of it. And I think you can extend that argument to trying to, I guess, lower the cost of a win to the point where, you know, it doesn't really, uh, you know, it, it's not recognizable. Uh, just, you know, the idea of building a team that's exciting to fans, it just really seems to be more about efficiency and that really doesn't sell after a certain point. Well, Rick Hahn has gotten, Big deals done. He did get Luis Robert. Uh, but as you mentioned, as far as the column, it seems like Kenny Williams has to be the one to carry it over the goal line for Jerry Reinsdorf, right? Even with Jose Abreu, Kenny Williams uh, had to go and meet Jose Abreu to convince Jerry Reinsdorf uh, to offer the largest free agent contract to a largely unknown player. Uh, so I guess with Manny Machado, let's play the hypothetical here, Jim. I believe Rick Hahn has been leading the charge for the White Sox here, uh, and he's going to remain patient because as many White Sox fans have pointed out on Twitter, uh, there might not be any sense to outbid yourself. Um, but with Kenny, how do you think this would have been different if Kenny Williams was still the GM or I guess was leading the negotiations? I don't know if it'd be any different because Jerry Reinsdorf is really the one talking to Lozano. Like as far as I can tell and, and what's been said, it's really, it seems like the GMs are, you know, or in, in Kenny's case, the vice president are mainly cut out of it. And it's all about, um, you know, owner versus agent. And, you know, when you see Reinsdorf and previous you know, negotiations, whether it's, you're talking about the stadium, uh, you know, when, when it came to getting new Comiskey park or, the strike or, you know, Glendale. Um, I think he's very much a, a hard nosed negotiator and really doesn't care so much about public opinion or I guess the fallout of a, a deal, uh, I, I guess, you know, maybe throwing elbows in the deal, uh, you know, collateral damage. And, and I, I think that just kind of falls by the wayside and, and based on his history with other deals just comes about, getting the best deal possible and then managing the sore feelings afterwards. And, you know, maybe that's the case here, or maybe, you know, Machado just doesn't want to play for the White Sox and, you know, the, the, you know, the White Sox aren't really feeling inspired to raise an offer. That's already the best. And I, I think that is probably the most likely scenario that Machado does not want to play with the White Sox, which that is a tough pill to swallow as a White Sox fan. Yeah. It's, uh, but I guess I'm kind of used to it based on, uh, you know, previous free. But people pursuits. don't want to get used to that, though. Jim. Yeah, they don't want to get. But used But they just to have it. to make themselves fun. You know, it's, uh, you know, they've just been kind of a dead end for free agents. The, uh, the last resort or where careers kind of go to die, <laughs> and uh, uh, I think it'll take some either. Uh, this this rebuild clicking and having a young core driving it and needing some you know veteran players still in their primes to finish it off or it'll just have to take a lot of money to show that they have deep pockets and can make it playable the way that Detroit did because you know, I, I don't know if Detroit would have been a free agent hotbed uh, the way that it was you know if Mike Illich wasn't opening it up and not caring about the 
you know, long-term ramifications of a big deal, uh, you know, for, you know, free agents like, you know, Prince Fielder or Victor Martinez. So I think when it comes to, uh, you know, Ryan's door from the White Sox, I think, you know, spending right now is the way to change it. And if not, it's going to take winning and then spending. Do you think any of the five players I mentioned, Machado, Harper, Marwin Gonzalez, Dallas Keuchel, or Craig Kimbrell sign this week? Well, I think when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes, we, we kind of know the, the, the deal with you know, Machado and Harper. I've heard nothing about Keuchel, nothing about Gonzalez, nothing about Kimbrell. So I could see that dragging into late February, early March, when those players <laughs> kind of crossing their fingers, hoping for an injury, Jim, you know, like... that, that changes the picture. <laughs> oh, I, I'm laughing because it's just, I think you're right. And it's ridiculous that you are right, that it could last until late February, early March. Yeah. But I, I until, you know, maybe the, uh, you know, the, the new CBA where maybe they establish some kind of revenue chunk or something like that, or salary floors or redo the salary structure for pre or pre-free agent players, you know, arbitration years, whatnot. Uh, I think this is going to, how it's going to be for the next couple of years. And unless, you know, some swashbuckling GM or owner just loses it and really just wants to blow the field away. Well, I saw the Zips projections for the Milwaukee Brewers. They could use a shortstop. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> maybe the Brewers can sign Manny Machado. Maybe the Giants get Bryce Harper. Who knows, man? Who knows? But I, it's been frustrating. I know other White Sox fans have been frustrated as well. Uh, we'll see what happens. Eventually, I assume these five players, and especially the most important one to the White Sox, Manny Machado, uh, will finally decide on where they want to play. But Jim, you and I will reconvene later in the show to answer your listeners and fans' questions in P.O. Sox. But coming up next, Harry Pavlidis from Baseball Prospectus joins the show to discuss the 2019 Pagoda projections for the White Sox and preview the catchers. A quick word from our sponsor, Visit Arizona. Pitchers and catchers are reporting this week to Glendale, Arizona. You know who should also head to Arizona this spring? You! Follow the White Sox to spring training as Arizona has so much to offer. All of the ballparks are within 50 miles of Phoenix, making it really easy to follow the team. And while you are in Arizona, check out all there is to offer. Beautiful landscapes and amazing sights to see. You can't miss out visiting the Grand Canyon or Monument Valley or some of the great craft breweries in the area like Four Peaks and Goldwater Brewing Company. Bring the kids along as Arizona is a fantastic destination for families with plenty of resorts to enjoy water parks, horseback riding, and activities for all ages. There's so much to do in Arizona and the best way to plan for your trip is going to visit Arizona.com slash spring training. Great recommendations on where to stay, where to eat, how to get there, what to do. It's the first stop you should make while planning for your trip this spring to visit Arizona. So again, go to visit Arizona.com slash spring training. This past Thursday, February 7th, was Pakoda Day. Always a fun release by Baseball Prospectus as the upcoming season projections were released. Also introducing to the upcoming 2019 season a new metric to track, which is Deserved Runs Created Plus, or known as DRC Plus. How does DRC Plus work? What does Pakoda think about the 2019 Chicago White Sox? And of course, we couldn't have our good friend of the podcast, Harry Pavlidis from Baseball Prospectus 
chat with us without talking about catching. So hello, Harry. Thanks for coming back on the Sox Machine podcast. It's great to be back, Josh. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the new stat. Deserved runs created plus. I guess what was wrong with runs created plus and why did the baseball prospectus team think that we, the baseball community, needed a new way of gauging offensive production? Well, I know we needed a new stat at BP. Uh, total average was the predecessor and underperformed in every way against the other leading brands. Okay. So that that's really the impetus for us is to do better. Uh, why? So it's really up to people if they want to use it. But really, we, we think it is better in many ways because of it takes a lot more context uh, than other metrics do into into account and does it in a pretty sophisticated way mathematically that we think is robust. So the results do come out, <clears throat> excuse me, the results of this do come out pretty attractively. So we, we you know, we, we demonstrate why we think so. Um, you know, why would you use DRC? It's like, well, you know, it's, here's the numbers. Here's how we've evaluated, it, you know, at team level and then also at an individual player level uh, to, to determine how well it goes against basically three different parameters of performance. And it, it for the most part, outperforms everything else. Um, what it what it attempts to be doing is to measure the entire set of contributions that a batter is making, and it, it takes into account what they're doing as well as what they're not doing, um, and where they're doing it, and again, you know, and against whom they are doing it again, you know, against. So the quality of the pitchers they're facing is included. There there are park factors. You know, a park is effect is included in that as well. Uh, so it tries to come through all the context that you could dig up that, and for each kind of event that a batter can contribute to at the plate, what is their degree of contribution to that outcome? What is their contribution to that being a double? Um, and then at the same time, if a, if, if a player is hitting singles, what's the value that they're losing by not hitting singles. There's a trade-off in everything. So if you're not walking, you're making more outs. So you may have a more attractive like hitting profile, but if you're not walking a lot, those outs, that's a problem. Uh, but if you're walking, if you're not making outs and you're not relying solely on, on singles, when you do put the ball on play and you do take your walks, then DRC starts to really like you. The one place where it had problems, and that's why we released an update to it just about a week ago, uh, is, well, two ways. One way was how it looked at um, certain extreme skills in hitters because it didn't believe them. Uh, so a guy like a Tony Gwynn, for example, w- would you know not be given full credit for all those singles because he was so far outside the distribution in a season because this philosophical thing we had about we want to be measuring performance within a season. And we're about performance, not talent or anything. We're trying to say, what are your contributions to the outcomes here? What is your performance on the field? And it works great, <laughs> uh, except for these really extreme guys who just go outside the range. Of, but they do it over and over and over and over. So there's this ability of, of certain players to just get tons of singles. You know, so what happened was like, the 3,000-hit club was emptied. 
<laughs> basically, when you add up the career numbers, like this isn't right. And all these seasons, you know, Ichiro is underappreciated, you know, for example. So through some, you know, work, Jonathan Judge, who's our lead statistics designer, he came up with just let's call it basically called an informed prior where it says this is allowed to go wider than the distribution that we have, that, that you, this is okay. <laughs> and basically said, these hitters have our hitters who have that ability and improve the metric and improve the, the ability of it to capture those extreme guys. So now Ichiro and Rod Carew and so on have, have the numbers that people expect them to have. So that was a good thing. And there was a weird, bug and how, I, I don't know if it's really a bug, it was a design flaw, but in terms of how the the park influence was being uh, applied at like the last step. And that was fixed. So the guys, so some of the Rockies hitters went down a little bit, but we still have a much rosier view of, of Colorado Rockies hitters than other uh, systems do. So we, for example, we look at Pakoda, which is using DRC as an input, isn't terribly frightened of DJ LeMahieu switching to New York and a lot of, you know, so we'll see, this is one of those things that, you know, it's new. We, we, we've subjected this to a lot of review and testing. Uh, the only thing that you can do with projection systems is <laughs> see what happens. Uh, so I normally hate the phrase of like time will tell, but literally that's what the only thing we can do at this point with the projections is see if they'll, they'll come true. But mathematically, DRC seems to be very um, powerful, and it seems to now, with some of those adjustments that I just described, fit more with, um, you know, there's, there aren't these red flags that say, this doesn't look right. Like, okay, sure, that's a nice picture, but it's hard to look at that picture knowing that there's, there, there, there's, a, there's a tear in the corner, and that corner is actually important. Uh, so, so accounting for that and having the tools to account for that is great. Uh, and then probably the last thing I want to point out is, and we decided to just dispense with the whole, with, with true average, we tried to have it as a center around 260. And I, uh, okay, makes sense, but we dispense with that and DRC plus is scaled around 100. So if, 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 if someone has 100 DRC, they're average for that league. That, so over for major leagues, um, Therefore, the National League, the overall DRC is lower because pitchers hit, and, and so it's. It, but generally speaking, you know, if you're if you're if you're at 100, you're average. If you're if you're 10 points higher, you're 10 10 percent better. If you're Mike Trout, you're at like 180. No, and that's what I like about it on that 100 scale because it's just very easy to look look it up on baseball prospectus. And we'll be chiming on these DRC projections for the 2019 season. And, you know, for example, Jose Abreu, which we'll chat about in a moment, 124 DRC plus is being projected. So the projection system is projecting that Jose Abreu is going to be 24% better than the average player. That's really good. Uh, There are some White Sox players that are going to be way below 100. And we know that's not very good. Uh, and and I just I, I like that standard because you can use it you know comparing positions uh, on just to see overall a position strength offensively in the major leagues and you know with slash lines especially like if you try to use OPS which I know a lot of people do still uh, as far as the baseball community we know that not all OPSs are equal so I, I do like your guys' efforts on trying to find a metric that better gauges offensive contribu- uh, contributions uh, for all players. 
at all positions offensively. If now, you have OPS of it, if OPS is all you have, that's great. Like everything is basically, can you beat OPS as a metric? Because it's actually very, very informative. And so we're like milking out the last ten, you know, percent of of information. There's really nothing wrong with just looking at that. But you're right; it's not not all things are equal, and you don't have context. That's the big thing about these advanced metrics. So it's not advanced. It's just attempting to account for context without throwing things out that are tricky. It's like trying to, you know, so, but you're right. You know, it is good to move up beyond OPS and having a hundred scale. I, I, I'm glad you're that it's a quicker, easier thing to understand than, then 790 is good this year. 810 was good last right. year. Right, the the bar moves. Yeah. If you stay out at 100 as league average, then it is a lot easier to gauge year over year. Yes, much. <laughs> now for the 2019 season, as of February 9th, Picota is projecting the White Sox to finish with a 71 and 91 record in 2019. That's a nine game improvement from last year. So that's good news, White well, that's Sox. That's good. That's yeah, great news. That's great news. Yes. We're here to discuss good news. <laughs> and uh, let's start with Jose Abreu. Picota is projecting him to have a, a good season, a bounce back season at three warp, hitting 282, 352 on base percentage, slugging 472. Those, that's a really good slash line from Jose Abreu. And, and Harry, I feel like this is a big year for Abreu personally. He'll be a free agent after this season. And I wonder if. All of these numbers, if they end up being true with the White Sox in 2019, and if Abreu has a really good first half, let's say he makes the All-Star game again, but the White Sox fall behind early in a deep hole in the American League Central, do you think that teams would be interested in trading for Abreu and Abreu would actually stick with the White Sox all year, or will he be moved on in the second half possibly? I mean, this is a young team that is we would expect to be losing pretty badly and pretty far behind the division that that's the picture right now. So we're looking, you know, they could do better. They could outperform. The Indians could go do poorly, but from, yeah, what you just said is basically the answer is yes. He, I would expect them to be gone <laughs> because his contracts contracts coming up and he's a good hitter. And, uh, you can usually find plenty of guys to replace the at bats at the locations, you know, first base and DH. So it's, um, you know, the, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the White Sox aren't excited to get rid of veteran players, but if they're not going to be re-signing him or they're comfortable at least saying that, you know, that's, that's it, you're, you're hitting the market, yeah, I think you would absolutely try to move him. Hopefully that will be a different tune when Eloy Jimenez finally joins with the White Sox this year. Harry, uh, Picota is projecting him to hit 280 with a 320 on base percentage, slugging 471. I think that's a great rookie season slash line uh, with a 1.9 warp. Uh, and, and like I mentioned, you know, I like the slash line. I, I like the projections. But the one thing I wonder with his total value moving forward, when you are looking at something like wins above replacement, uh, how much is his defense going to drag down his total warp? Do you think not only for 2019, but maybe for his career? Oh, that's defense evaluation for you know outfielders is a tricky thing to measure. Um, he's not projected to be terrible. I mean, he's he's below average, but in terms of overall value, we're talking you know a run, a tenth of a win. So, not I wouldn't worry about his defense. 
And he may get better with better coaching, better routing, better decision-making. Uh, he can throw, right? So uh, we don't worry about it. <laughs> He's going to hit a lot. So let him hit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I think he's going to be a stud offensively, and it's going to be fun, hopefully in the second half of 2019, depending on what the Blue Jays do with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., that you know you kind of have this uh, this nice little rivalry uh, to start off as far as maybe looking ahead between Vlad and Eloy uh, that could help make the game interesting while you still have like the Yankees, Red Sox, and Astros dominating the American League. Moving over to second base, a player that I think really needs to take a big step forward this season is Yohan Mikata. After he had a disappointing 2018, the Pakota projections are not pretty for Mikata with a slash line of 236, with a 317 on base percentage and slugging 387. We know strikeouts are an issue with Harry, and we know that despite his batting average last year, that it was where it was because he had a high uh, batting average with balls in play. And if he performs like this projected slash line is, Harry, White Sox fans are going to begin to wonder if Mikata's a bust. That's, but that's not a – I mean, let's be fair. I mean, that's not that bad for a major league second baseman. I mean, I, I'm, he's not a first division player, but he's also only, what, 24? So, you know, he's probably two to four years away from his peak, and he's, you know, not – a, not a world beater, but a guy who's going to play, you know, projects to one and a half wins above replacement. That's, you know, a regular player. Not, he's not going to be in your first division player, but I wouldn't look at that as a weak spot. So I think if people are picking on on him as being a bust, that's probably just a matter of uh, expectation setting and probably being more realistic about what his, what his skills are, where they are now, and how old he is, and where, you know, where a more reasonable set of expectations should be. Uh, he's going to be one of the better regulars on the team. So, yeah, I, I would be nice to him. When you trade Chris Sale and Mikata is the the headliner, along with Michael Kopech, they, you know, we're expecting him to be a, first, a first division player. I mean, you are trading one of the top starting pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. Well, he might be in a couple of years, but not yet. I think it's a little hard to call a guy bust based on what, where he's projected in his age twenty four season. That 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 would be my my bone to pick on on people who are or who maybe look at him that way. The defensive contributions are probably important. He's not a terrible defender. He can play. He's obviously good enough to play that position. The bat is behind. It's behind where people want it to be. But so what if he was peak? It's not his fault he was traded for Chris Sale. You know, it's part of that is not just the. To think that you're going to get the ability of talent back for Chris Sale when, let's be honest, they were trying to avoid paying his salary. It's like you're getting back the discount of money that you're trying to unload plus the talent. So so it's not fair to the players to say that this should be a first division player. It's like, no, you, you were dumping off a, con- a, a potentially large contract and, you know, Somebody you didn't want to continue to pay at the level they were going to demand. And you got back a couple of prospects, and one of them was already playing through every day in his early 20s. Let's, let's not think about him as a bust. <laughs> I mean. Uh, so moving away from the position players, I, I want to chat with you about one pitcher in particular before we talk about catching. And that's Ronaldo Lopez. I know that you are a big fan of Lopez 
Before the 2018 season, you nailed it right on the head. You thought that he'd be better in 2018 than Lucas Giolito, and Lopez by far and away was. What are you expecting out of Lopez in 2019? Because I know that there was a significant gap between what his ERA finished at, which was below four, and where his FIP was, which was pretty close to five. Do do you think Lopez, because Bakota looks like that it, Lopez is more of the pitcher closer to his FIP than where his ERA ended in 2018. Right. I mean, DRA actually is worse than his FIP by a lot. Pitchers can click and get much better all of a sudden, but you know, his performance, you know, you, you, it's hard to predict what if and when that will happen. He's, he's still a guy I've always liked and it's still that pitcher, but you know, you're start, we're starting to see more and more who these guys are and Sam Giolito and, yeah, that ERA was probably not uh, a great representation. I mean, didn't he have like an obscene strand rate? Like he was getting guys on and they weren't scoring. So it's a yeah. So it, it sounds like, you know, he was getting out of trouble that he should not have been getting out of. But this pitching staff does project to be not good. I mean, the bullpen may, you know, could be, you know, less horrifying, perhaps. I mean, I think there's potential, like that some of those. There's some decent arms in that bullpen. You never know. Bullpens are a strange thing, but the rotation is is like there's not much. There's not much there. Right. And it's it's kind of a bummer because I I personally had higher hopes that like this three this front three of you know Rodon, Julito, and Lopez. I would have thought that would have been looking better going to the season. So in a way, there's still optimism. There's still some upside there. But again, you know, we've we've been seeing these guys now, and we're probably getting closer to seeing this as who they are. But pitchers can develop really slowly, you know, and suddenly put things together and figure things out. <clears throat> so we'll see. I hope they do better. I know I'm cheering for them to do better. So let's talk about catching. And I think a good way to get this started uh, as we start our position previews for 2019 uh, one of our listeners, as in Rec, is asking you, Harry, do you have a good sense of how the White Sox evaluate catcher performance and how the team's method of evaluation differs from baseball prospectus? I f- don't know for sure, but I think they put more weight on the staff management soft skills than they do with the strike preservation receiving framing skills based on the players they've selected and the occasional rare public statement. So that's about all I know. So I, so when we look at their catchers, we go, eh. should also point out that, you know, one of the main reasons we have negative numbers next to these catchers on defense is because of their framing. We don't think they save strikes. We think they, we, they're losing strikes that, you know, they should be getting. And that's not something that you can really get away with when you have, you know, for the, unless you have, you know, pitchers with better command who, who don't really need a catcher who's, particularly sophisticated. Um, the, the trick with all that is that since in the last 10 years, as this data has been published and publicized and used by teams and public alike, the floor has risen. So the average framer in 2019 is a lot better than the average framer in 2009. I, I, I'm just going to state that as an unprovable axiom. <laughs> okay. It may be provable if you go and look at video or something, and maybe there's some mathematical ways that my colleagues can come up with. But I, I'm just going to say the floor has, has risen because you don't see Ryan Domit anymore. 
we do not see Carlos Santana. We players move off. Catching has always been a position of floors. Like you don't get to catch in the major leagues unless you can do these things. If you have to block enough, you have to be able to, to throw enough. And you know, if you have a serious glaring weakness in any part of your game defensively, you tend to not be given too many chances to to catch in the majors. Framing was was always something there. I mean, people have been talking about framing since the you know the first like references to like how important it is, is are, are in like nineteen thirteen, nineteen fourteen, and it's like really important, like the number one thing for a catcher. It's like, okay, so that means, you know, basically by the time you had pitchers throwing overhand and, uh, you know, catchers having gloves uh, and everybody kind of moving closer to the plate because of equipment where you can see, you know, things, framing has started. Don't block the umpire. Don't be moving around back there. Here's how your hands should be. This, so, people, so by 1914, it was like, this is how you have this number one thing for your catcher. You can go look this up. It's interesting. Uh, so what's happened is this skill that was always there started getting measured and people were like, whoa, it's worth that much. And everybody's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. And it was like, yeah, it keeps showing up. And even the most recent studies are like, it's not as much as BP says it's worth. They're just censoring data, (laughs) just counting fewer pitches. I think I don't, and maybe calculating the run values a little more conservatively. There's really, it's the, the, we're in the ballpark. Um, but what's happened is and I think Jeff Sullivan's written a lot about this, is that the floor has, you know, gone up. And there's this situation where the average framer is actually probably pretty good at it. They may they may have been an average above average framer 10 years ago. So when we say these guys are below average and they're costing their pitcher strikes, relative to the rest of the league, yes. The range of how much that cost is to your pitchers has, has gotten smaller over time, it seems, because umpiring and skill kind of squeezing because of the floor. Um, and that's about it. So it's a problem and it, you can see it in the numbers. Uh, and I, I think it's, sub, I, I, I believe it's suboptimal and I'm not just because of the numbers, but just because of the, the people who actually work in baseball and coach players and, and catching. So they, they really stress the importance of it. I get the sense that the White Sox do not find it as important as some of the rest of us do. Mm, I don't know about that. Because uh, when it comes to Wellington Castillo, Harry, I, I can't. I, I'm having a hard time trusting him. I mean, he missed 81 games last year because of blood doping. And if a catcher needs to start blood doping, I am really worried about their longevity, uh, at least health wise. I mean, he can hit. He can definitely hit. And he'll be one of the better bats in the White Sox lineup to start 2019. But he's. he's He's to be counted on to be the everyday starting catcher for the White Sox. Somebody that can make 90 to 100 starts in 2019 because his backup is someone that I do not like and never thought he was good or a major league catcher, and that's James McCann. So looking, so this is our third year breaking down the catchers together, Harry. I mean, we've... Yeah, okay. <laughs> Doom, because <laughs> it was Alex Avila and Dierno Navarro, <laughs> right? So looking at the catchers here, I mean, how bad of a situation is the present day? And you know, we are starting to get some projections for the future as well. Yeah, Wellington's obviously pretty good overall. You know, I mean, he's the will he hold up with playing time increases? I don't know. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Uh, it's a problem. 
catching is super hard to develop, and I don't so I, I don't know much about the younger guys, but they're 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 not looking super hot either, are they? So yeah, I, I you really have to worry if one of your better offensive players is a catcher because there's going to be this urge to keep them in the lineup, and blood doping needs or not, you know every I, he's probably at risk for like what could happen across town, you know a good hitting. Uh, Bad framing catcher and played too much, and he became a terrible framing bad hitting catcher as he got tired. Uh, so this is like not just like you know a phenomenon in Chicago or along the red line. This is something that you just it happens in baseball. So yeah, I would definitely worry about the catching situation. You're probably going to see McCann playing a lot more than you want. Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I don't want to hear it because it's the truth. <laughs> I don't think he was very good in Detroit. I'm not sure why the White Sox gave him a guaranteed two and a half million dollars when I felt better catchers are signing minor league contracts with invitations to spring training to fight for a spot on their 25 man. Yeah, I, again, they may have a way of evaluating catchers that we don't know, and it's like they're doing something else. This, that's you know. I mean that's 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 the that's the best explanation I can give you because you're right. There's there's other ways to get this this what perceived value that we have on this guy. There's other ways to find that in the market. I'm not going to chide them for paying the guy too much. That's fine. Um, but it does indicate to your earlier point that there's something different about how the White Sox place value on on the different skills of that position. Man. Well, great stuff as always. Again, he is Harry Pavlidis. You can read their excellent work on BaseballPerspectives.com. I highly recommend it. Definitely check out Deserved Runs Created Plus during the 2019 season. It'll be a great way to track as far as if the position players are getting better offensively. And uh, hopefully uh, we see some hope from the, the catching position coming into 2019. And uh, hopefully Sebi Zavala and Zach Collins perform better in AAA this year. Harry, as always, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Sox Machine Podcast. Always fun. Thanks, Josh. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you are willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever by searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value. SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget, plus every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. I use SeatGeek all of the time. I have the app on my phone. It's by far the easiest way I found to shop for tickets, especially buying White Sox tickets. Or if you want to go see the Chicago Bulls or the Chicago Blackhawks, there's a bunch of concerts coming to Chicago as well. I always go to SeatGeek first to buy tickets because they have the best value and the best prices for those concerts and sporting events. And best of all, Sox Machine listeners get $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE to save $10 off 
your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event, we have the tickets. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting your questions to us at Socks Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, and helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And I'm reconvened uh, with Jim Margulis to answer your guys' questions this week. And Jim, the first question we've got comes from Matt Hinckley on Twitter, and Matt is asking... Jim, to what extent do you expect improved power numbers for Zach Collins playing home games in Charlotte? How else can we expect his results to change facing AAA pitchers rather than AA pitching, if at all? I think he's somebody who could see a minimal drop-off or maybe even a little bit uh, of a production boost going from double A AA to AAA for a few reasons. Um, you know, one is that he's not a ground ball hitter. I think about one third of his batted balls, you know, if you can trust Fangraph's uh, tracking of it, about one third of his batted balls stay on the ground. The rest are line drives and fly balls. He's got you know big opposite field power. So going to a smaller park, uh, you know, going from Birmingham to Charlotte could get some lucky homers that he didn't get in Birmingham. Um, yet there is maybe a a case where yeah, it, it could have been greater, but you know, when looking at his splits from last year, he actually hit more homers in Birmingham than he did on the road, and sometimes that happens. <laughs> um, you know, just players do better at home when they're not traveling, when they're not doing bus rides, and maybe somebody like Collins, you know, in a smaller park would have had an even greater home split. So you can't quite say like, well, he's not affected by anything. Yeah, you know, that just might have been the way it broke down. But uh, I imagine the opposite field power will play a bit better in Charlotte. Uh, there's also the idea that he's got the hitch in his swing. That's kind of the big thing he's working on right now. And, you know, if you're looking at double A pitchers versus triple A pitchers, um, you know, maybe that's the case where double A arms might give him a little bit more trouble by bringing more elite velocity. Um, a lot of cases, triple A rosters are filled with craftier pitchers, sixth starter types, uh, long relief types. They don't have the huge arms. They have, you know, better approaches, but have hit a wall with, you know, maybe not having enough power on their fastball or their breaking stuff. And so maybe, you know, he'll be able to get around on pitches more, be able to drive stuff more to the pole field, um, you know, not be tied up so much by, you know, big fastballs. And because uh, when it seems like, you know, reading the scouting reports and, you know, watching him play, he doesn't really have a problem laying off breaking balls or pitch recognition, just more of a matter of, uh, you're just being beat sometimes and maybe triple a pitchers. If he doesn't face, you know, depending on how the the rosters and the international league are composed and how pitching staffs are. But if he's facing like fastballs in the low nineties and, you know, more of a, you know, kind of junk balling array from lefties who are fringe types, you might be able to feast on that a little bit and play up. So, uh, I can see the situation where he, you know, continues to hit 230-240 and there's no drop off, maybe he gets a little bit of a boost, but uh, I think it's going to take some uh some good scouts I think to tell us, you know, and inform us to whether he's made any progress turning around great pitching. And uh I think that's the question and might be hard to tell especially early on when you have a small sample. Matt, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Hope. And Mark is asking, it's impossible to say at this point that the success of the rebuild relies on signing 
Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, or Nolan Arenado looking ahead to 2020. But does the perception of a successful rebuild rely on signing a Tier 1 free agent? Even if the team materially progresses the next couple of years, will the inability to get those top-tier guys keep eyes away from TV, butts, and seats and continue the skepticism of the fans who have stuck around over the past decade? I don't think so. Um, When it comes to uh, the rebuild, I think any success is needed and and appreciated and loved. And I think the Houston Astros are a team they look at that maybe the Justin Verlander trade might be, but even then that wasn't early signing. That was, they they took him on in a, in an August deal. So um, the, the Tigers can only deal him to the Astros. But they've been mainly, you know, all internal guys. Uh, they, they've spent a little bit to augment the roster, but they really haven't gone all out on the open market. And they keep landing guys. And I think uh, uh, when when Astros fans look at the championship and, and look at the team, they love their homegrown players and the players they traded for. Uh, and, and they're not mad that, you know, they, that maybe Jeff Lunau is a bit... Um, too numbers oriented and doesn't really go all out and, and spend a ton. I think they're happy with Astro Ball and, and the way they evaluated players. So uh, when it comes to the White Sox, you know they, they might not have the finishing pieces like the Cubs, but as long as uh, when it comes to spending, just being able to keep it going. Like I think having a Royals type window where they have basically two good years, uh, two years where they make the postseason, then it all falls apart. That might be the case where. The, the rebuild is for naught and there's no faith inspired and, you know, it's back to the drawing board. But I think, you know, if they're able to get to the postseason a couple times in a row, if Eloy Jimenez is a major star and, and a major draw and, you know, the, the pitching staff, you know, Michael Kopech comes back from Tommy John surgery, he's an ace or, or at least a number two pitcher and, and uh, makes an occasional all-star team. Uh, he'll be a big draw. He'll sell jerseys and people love that. And if they can, and the White Sox, pony up to keep those guys then you know and and the window doesn't close then i think uh the rebuild will be a success i think it's just more a matter of if they don't get to the postseason or if they get there once and then uh it all falls apart then i think the perception will be that nothing happened and and another rebuild with the same front office and ownership is a bad idea and uh there will be a lot less faith in it mark cope thank you so much for your question our next question comes from Mark Sambor, and Mark is asking, what do you believe is the reputation of the Chicago White Sox organization as a destination among Major League Baseball players? Timely question, Mark. Uh, It seems many players have stayed on with the organization after retirement to take roles with the team. However, there are embarrassing incidents such as La Faire LaRoche, Chris Sale's jersey shredding, or the battles Kenny Williams has had with individuals in the media. I would say the reputation isn't good, but I imagine it's not, uh, or, or, or it's redeemable. I was going to say not you know, uh, double negative and say not irredeemable, but I'll just say there it's redeemable. They can bounce back from it. It'll just take winning, you know, based on the previous question, one of the two ways, whether they, you know, it's all, uh, mostly a homegrown or the rebuild comes through and, and provides all the talent, and they don't sign free agents or they pony up and, and turn into the tigers and, pay a couple guys big contracts out of nowhere or surprise everybody and uh, reward 
talent on the open market. Yeah, that might be, especially in this climate where players aren't getting deals, maybe that goes a long way to make an impression. But I think it just comes down to winning. And uh, with the White Sox, they probably just don't register much of a thought at all, um, as sad as that is to say. You know, they just... uh, (laughs) You know, they're not the Yankees, they're not the Red Sox, they're not the Cubs, not the Dodgers, Astros. They, you know, those teams, I think, you know, can coast on their reputations a bit. And I think when it comes to the White Sox and a team in that market, that just they have to show their worth, whether it's with their wallets or with wins. And the wins aren't there yet. And right now they're not, uh, I guess, compelling for agents enough with uh, how high they're willing to go. But once, you know, they're back into the... 80 win territory and however they get there. Uh, I, I think they'll be compelling enough. I think Rick Renteria, maybe if Robin Ventura were there and it was like a Jim Boylan situation where just somebody who is completely overmatched for the job is there year after year and, and uh, just kind of a laughing stock and, uh, and, and players around the league hear that the players in the clubhouse don't respect the manager. Then, you know, maybe that would be a case where, reputation would kick in and you'd see them on more no trade clauses. But I think Rick Renteria has a firm grasp on the dugout. He's, he's a good enough communicator, even with the benchings that um, he's able to get past it and, and uh, work with players enough to, uh, I guess, make them feel not like <laughs> idiots or in the doghouse or anything like that. So uh, basically I think it'll just take winning. However, it comes to, make it a place where players uh, think they're joining something good uh, because that right now seems to be the difference maker when it comes to negotiating with like, say the second tier guys for the first tier, I think it's mainly money and uh, uh, paying them what they think they're worth. I wish baseball star players thought it'd be as cool wearing a white Sox cap as NBA star players do. Yeah, and and that's the one thing I think of, just like if this rebuild can work or if they can land a guy. Like, seems like the White Sox are you know maybe not a global brand waiting to happen because I think you know Cubs being in the same town taking up a lot of the oxygen um, hurts them a little bit. But it wouldn't you know just getting to the postseason two years in a row <laughs> with the with the way they have kind of a, a foothold in other spheres and you know. Or, you know, whether it's, you know, with NBA players, hip hop, uh, Obama, you know, making it cool for a while. Uh, you know, they, they have this logo appearing in places you wouldn't normally see it. And you just wish that the team could drive it themselves a little bit too, like help push it along and help you know, like, oh, it's, you know, it's just a baseball team. It's like, oh, it's the White Sox. You know, it, that's what I'd like to see in just two Two consecutive postseason appearances, I think, would change uh, so much about how the White Sox are perceived and how the fans perceive it and the faith. And I think there would be a little bit of a self-sustaining power to it. But right now, until they prove that they can do it two years in a row, uh, they're just kind of this weird, um, yeah, it's just this disconnected, icon in one culture and it's not really backed up by any kind of success in its original source great questions this week guys thank you so much 
for taking the time to submit them. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on this show, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Machine. And also help support the show and the site by becoming one of our friends of the podcast at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our Patreon supporters not only get an opportunity to ask additional P.O. Sox questions that we answer for them, but they also get an opportunity to ask additional questions and topics for our guests. And they get those special recordings every single week that are ad-free. So if that is something that you're interested in, you want more content from us, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up. And that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening and big thanks to Harry Pavlidis of Baseball Perspectives for joining us. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe in a variety of ways. One is through iTunes, another Spotify, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.